0: Everybody. I'm Howie Hawkins, I was the Green Party candidate for president in 2020, and this podcast, Green Socialist Notes, is about continuing the education and organizing around the eco-socialist program that Angela Walker and I ran on. And today we have Matthew Ho as a guest. He is the Green Party candidate for U.S. Senate from North Carolina. And if you don't recognize his name, uh, when I give his bio, you wonder why you don't, because he's been a prominent anti-war activist. He's a retired Marine Corps officer and U.S. Foreign Service officer, which who came to national notoriety when he resigned from his Foreign Service position in 2009 in protest of the war in Afghanistan. So he'll be coming up shortly. I just want to make a few comments on some of the headlines We had this decision or or, uh, giving a sentence to Kim Potter, the police officer who shot and killed Dante Wright out in uh, a suburb of Minneapolis. And she was given just a two-year sentence for manslaughter, which is well below the seven-year sentencing guideline for the crime and what prosecutors asked for. And Officer Potter will be out in 14 months. And what really got me was the judge teared up in sympathy for the cop, as she gave the sentence, not for Dante Wright's family. I mean, he was racially profiled to be stopped, and what was a routine traffic stop became a deadly incident. And that's in contrast to uh, what happened to Muhammad Noor, a Minneapolis police officer. Who I'm sorry about that. That phone I can't stop. he will stop in a minute. Um, who shot to death an unarmed citizen. And he got sentenced originally to 12 years. Uh, They reduced that in the end to five years, but he was a black officer. So the racial disparities in our criminal justice system, they're just so entrenched. And it's discouraging to see how little change has been made since the George Floyd protests in 2020, which brought out an estimated 15 to 25 million people, which makes it the largest protest movement in US history. But now we're in a situation where the Democrats are trying to outdo the Republicans with tough on crime messaging and we've seen this before that's how we got the the crime bills in the 1990s which led to an acceleration of mass incarceration. So it's another reason why we need the greens to address the root causes of of crime, violent crime and property crime which is rooted in poverty. Uh you can't stop it with more cops and harsher sentencing. I mean that That happens after the fact, and there's a link that uh, will come up uh, that just shows the correlation between gun violence and economic hardship in black communities. I mean, that's the reality that needs to be addressed and is not by the two major parties. Another thing that really concerns me is that now the Democratic uh, governors are dropping the mask mandates, joining the Republicans, and there were 2,000 COVID deaths last week which is a little bit above the average for the whole pandemic. And of course, the right wing's been using these mask mandates as a wedge issue to attack, to attack public health measures, science, and any government regulations. And they, they're they claiming that the mask mandates in schools harm children. And that's their wedge issue. But the studies show clearly that masks reduce the spread of COVID, They do not adversely affect the speech and language development of children. They don't adversely affect their breathing. They don't adversely affect their social development, including being able to learn and read the emotions of other individuals who are masked. And it doesn't adversely affect their mental health, although what does is isolation, which the school shutdowns and the childcare shutdowns contributed to. But they can be open, but with masking rather than risking. Uh, you know, COVID coming back. And I think Fauci said something like this. I've been thinking it all along. You know, people may want to be done with COVID, but COVID is not done with us. We may be on the tail end of this Omicron surge, but it's foolish to think it will be the last surge. The global South is, for the most part, not vaccinated. The virus is evolving. New variants can come up. So new surges are almost inevitable until the world is vaccinated. None of us are going to be safe until all of us are safe. And again, the Biden administration has many authorities, the Defense Production Act, uh, some provisions under patent law where they could take over the vaccines, make them available to the world. Uh, But the Biden administration seems more interested in protecting big pharma profits than ending the pandemic. So the Greens need to be demanding the socialization of these vaccine formulas and U.S. support for the production of sufficient vaccines to vaccinate the world. Public Citizen a year ago put a price tag on this. They they did a study, $25 billion to vaccinate the world. That's one-third of 1% of the $778 billion military budget that Congress just approved. It would be hard to think of a more cost-effective expenditure to defend our country than $25 billion to vaccinate the world. Um, So... That is the issue that concerns me, and it just seems like we're giving up on COVID and maybe setting ourselves up for, uh, you know, a tragedy with another variant coming through. And then, of course, I think on everybody's mind is Ukraine. And I have to say, I don't believe the propaganda we're getting from either side. You know, Biden says Russia is going to invade Ukraine within days. That's what he said yesterday. Uh, before that, he said February 16th. And in Russian state media, I've looked at RT and Sputnik, they say Ukraine is already attacking the Russian separatist regions in Donbass in the east. Um, but their reporters, you know, I've seen CNN and MSNBC, they're near there. They say they see no evidence of that. But both sides are accusing the other of false flag operations to justify their own operations. And you could say the war isn't about to start. It's been going on for years. It's been hybrid warfare engaged by both the U.S. and Russia, cyber attacks, providing weapons, propaganda, trainers, special forces in, in the proxy war in the in the Donbass. So my brain tells me, you know, Russia would be stupid to invade Ukraine, including what Biden said they would go into Kiev, the capital. Um, to me, that's out of character for all the Russians' recent foreign operations, which have been a lot, you know, Georgia, Moldova, Crimea, Donbass, Syria, Libya, Mali, Burkina Faso, Mozambique, Kazakhstan. But they don't use, you know, a large military force like we went into Iraq with. They use local proxy militias, special operations. They have their Wagner mercenary group. And in some cases, like Syria, they, they, they bring air power. Um, that's been the Russian pattern since the disastrous war they got into in Afghanistan. It's also been the pattern for U.S. foreign intervention since our disastrous wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. It's just the U.S. does it on a much larger scale globally. Uh, the economic destruction, the refugees—you um, know—the world condemnation that uh, Russia would get would make it stupid for them to invade, uh, and it would be stupid for the U.S. you know try to instigate a war with false flag provocations that's what my brain tells me but my gut tells me the leaders can indeed be stupid when they get into this great power competition and ego competition frankly um so the situation is very dangerous and as i've said in the previous podcast you know the greens need to be pushing the u.s to pursue a diplomatic solution uh has four elements that basically conform to the uh Minsk means accord that the Ukraine, Russia, France, and Germany agreed to in 2015 and the U.N. Security Council endorsed, and that would mean the U.S. and Russia respect the non-aligned neutral independent sovereignty of Ukraine. The U.S. gives Russia some security guarantees, including no uh, admission of Ukraine to NATO, and Russia in turn gives uh, Ukraine security guarantees, including withdrawing military support from the Donbass separatists, and then Ukraine gives Russia and their own people uh, guarantees that the civil and cultural rights of Russian-speaking Ukrainians are respected. Um, You know, that doesn't seem like that far reach. yet we've got this crazy hybrid war going on. And beyond the immediate Ukraine crisis, I think we should also be demanding that the U.S. and Russia start engaging in broader negotiations around a security framework for all of Europe and for nuclear disarmament. The security framework is is something that was initially raised when uh, Gorbachev dissolved the Warsaw Pact, and the U.S. talked about it for a little bit. Uh, The Russians proposed it again seriously 15 years ago. Uh, West European leaders, particularly Francis Macron, has been proposing it in recent weeks. And it would involve, you know, the ability to have transparency and inspect each other's military forces, and uh, reduce them over time, uh, so they're less threatening and less on a trigger. Um, And then we should be negotiating nuclear disarmament, starting with uh, the anti-ballistic missile and intermediate-range nuclear forces treaties that the U.S. got out of, um, and then continuing to negotiate the uh, updated SALT treaty, which the U.S. and Russia did agree to soon after Biden came in to extend the existing SALT treaty. But we should also push them toward complete nuclear disarmament under the terms of this new treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, which 86 nations have endorsed, none of them nuclear. But, uh, you know, Reagan and Gorbachev almost got there 45 years ago with major nuclear arms reductions in the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. It was just Reagan's insistence on Star Wars missile defense, which was a pipe dream anyway, that blocked complete nuclear disarmament. So that should be a top priority for U.S. foreign policy. And we're really living on borrowed time in the middle now of a new nuclear arms race in which the U.S., Russia, and China are engaged. So uh, I know Matthew Ho, our guest, has some thoughts on on Ukraine and, and many other subjects. So Let's bring on Matthew. Matthew, as I said, is the Green Party candidate for the U.S. Senate from North Carolina. He's a retired Marine Corps officer who served three tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan and and then as a State Department Foreign Service officer when he resigned in 2009 in protest of the Afghan war policy as Obama was surging the troop deployments to Afghanistan. His resignation letter, you should all check it out. It's been cited by the Council of Foreign Relations as an essential document. He's a senior fellow with the Center for International Policy. His writings have appeared in many publications from Counterpunch, The Guardian, and Mother Jones, to USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post. He's also been a guest on hundreds of news programs uh, from Democracy Now! and The Real News Network recently. You should check out that interview to BBC, CNN, MSNBC, NPR, you name it, so so welcome, Matthew. It's great to have you on. So why don't you tell us about yourself and your campaign and what you hope to do?
1: Hey, thanks, Howie. It's it's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, yeah, running for the U.S. Senate uh, here in North Carolina uh, as a as a green. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit about this before I came on, and why am I doing this? And there's all the um, there's all the the, the uh, reasons of my own political philosophy, my own economic philosophy, what I've learned from books, what I've learned from people who have taught me things, what I've learned from people who've gone before me like you have. Uh, you know. But a lot of this has to do with my own personal experiences, uh, the fact that uh, I have a list of people in my life um, who have been uh, victimized, brutalized, suffered, killed uh, by the policies of our government um, for as long as I've been alive, which is you know almost 50 years now. You know, in that list of people, um, if I was to stack that list, it would, you know, go well through my ceiling. And uh, so that that's the reason why I'm doing this. There's a there's a, a desire to see change in this country, but I also have people in my life who need help right now. And more so, I have people in my life, and I think everybody who's watching does it well, people who deserve accountability. And we have no accountability. We have no accountability for the policies of the last 50 years. Of this government, whether it be uh, the wars overseas, the war on drugs, the economic policies that have just essentially ruined people—you know—the inequality we see in this country is a life and death issue. Um, So, you know, that that that's what brings me here. Um, I was asked to run by the Green Party, uh, you know, so I I chose to do so because I believe uh, I am a member of the Green Party, and I believe that third-party politics. Is the only way that we're going to get any type of leverage, have any force on the two party system in order to get those things that the people of this country need, that the people of the world need, and that our planet needs. You know, so when I look at what, you know, what am I doing this for? What are the issues? Uh, You know, climate is, is, is right at the top because if we don't do something about the climate, nothing else matters. Uh, and, you know, you, you spoke about it this way. You know, I, I remember this has been a big thing of mine since I probably first read it. You know, FDR's uh, second Bill of Rights, his economic Bill of Rights, the, the idea that people have a, a, a right to health care, a right uh, to, 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 to just wages and a job, a right to housing. Uh, and a right to education. Those are all things I believe and things that other nations do, uh, that other nations have enshrined in their constitutions. And I believe we have that in ours as well, as well as uh, other legal reasons. But the moral reason for it trumps all of that, of course. You know, the the war on drugs, uh, you know, whether it is the mass incarceration, um, the policies of the federal government that have driven uh, things that you, as you described uh, with, you know, Dante Wright, and that travesty, as, as you were explaining, um, you know, uh, the mass incarceration aspect of that. But then also, too, um, the individuals, the families, the communities that have just been um, uh, the catastrophe that has unfallen so many in this country um, with, with the overdoses. You know, we have over 100,000 overdoses a year in this country. Uh, if that's not a reason, if that doesn't tell you, that the war on drugs has been a complete failure uh and not even i'm just a failure it's been amazingly counterproductive then i don't know what to tell you you know and the number of people i know who have been um impacted by that whose whose futures have been ruined because a husband a son a cousin a daughter etc were taken from us because we treat addiction and substance abuse in this country as a criminal problem rather than something that we should deal with, with public health and treating people as human beings with inherent dignity and rights. You know, I mean, so those are the kind of top line things that bring me here uh, today with you. Uh, You know, one of the things that that motivates me in all this, though, is is just the great injustice of our political system. Um, And here in North Carolina, uh, we are not on the ballot. We have to get on the ballot. Um, in order to, uh, to, ha- to let North Carolinians have uh, someone to vote for who believes in these things, who believes that the war on drugs is hurting us, not protecting us, who, believe- who have seen the, the results of our war overseas and what that has done to, to tens of millions of people, uh, as well then, too, the, the uh, someone who believes that housing, education, health care, uh, um, and jobs are human rights. You know, if, if people in North Carolina... Uh, are allowed to have that choice. We need to get on the ballot. So that's one of the things that if I can make a pitch right up front uh, is, is, you know, for people to help uh, to donate uh, volunteer with us uh, and just tell their friends and family about this campaign, because it is uh, criminal how expensive it is for us to get on the ballot.
0: Yeah. I'm a, I'm kind of a connoisseur of ballot access because I've been <laughs> fighting for it for decades and in a way, I envy you in North Carolina. You have, I don't know how long, but it's months to get 14,000 signatures. We're going to have to get 45,000 signatures in 42 days this spring in New York.
1: Yeah, no, we're, we're in better shape than you guys are. Uh, I heard from a colleague of ours that in Colorado, um, you just can't get any registered voter. You have to get a registered voter from your party in the county that they reside in in order to, to you know so we don't have that we can just have any north carolina registered voter but we do have to get 14,000 by uh beginning of may uh which is you know which it doesn't sound like much until you start to really learn about this and you see uh, how difficult the process is but also how uh, uh costly it is but yeah fortunately we don't have anything like what you guys have in new york though
0: Yeah, and most states in the United States are off the charts compared to other countries. Just take Ukraine. I recently learned this. There's a left-wing group there that's trying to form a party. They need 10,000 signatures for a country of 44 million, uh, and they have unlimited time to gather them. It's, you know, when I ran for president, we needed 800,000 signatures in 51 jurisdictions, all with different requirements. So... I, you know, one of the things I really appreciated when I looked at your campaign website is the first thing you talk about are democracy reforms. Because I'll tell you, if I learned anything from our presidential campaign, it was that the Greens and anybody independent of the two-party system is going to be marginalized by the spoiler effect. Of course, with Trump on the ballot, we really got it this time. And uh, so, you know, you talk about... uh, ranked choice voting, proportional representation, and those kind of reforms. So I think that needs to be, you know, our presidential campaign had, you know, three major issues, the Green New Deal for climate change, the Economic Bill of Rights for economic justice, and uh, peace policies, particularly nuclear disarmament. But I, if I run again, I would say there's a fourth thing, and that is we've got to change the electoral system because it's exclusionary. And- exactly.
1: Yeah, exactly. And in, in, in everything we're talking about, all these things that have to happen that are all life and death issues. None of this is not right. None of this is just some type of academic exercise because we're socialists and we, you know, we've we, 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 we had a long night of smoking pot and came up with these ideas. No, this is what is killing people in our communities. But you're absolutely right, Howie, because if we don't change our democracy, if we keep this democracy, which is either, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, a legalized bribery or a protection racket, whichever way you want to look at it, um, our people are going to continue to die. The inequality is going to continue to get worse, and our planet is going to continue to, to, to burn, basically, Um you know, so the idea of, of strengthening democracy, but also expanding it and making it more inclusive, uh, almost every year, the biggest voting block are non-voters. And those people are not, not voting because they are lazy, but most of them are not voting because they simply feel left out. They don't see what purpose it gives them, what's going to come from it, particularly when they have to take a, lose a day's pay in order to go do it. Uh, I mean, so just the whole way the system is set up. And one of the things I found really interesting that I've been talking to people about is the fact that as I've dealt with the FEC and seeing the FEC rules up close and having to, to read these and how purposely, and I think this is kind of a, a good example for the larger point we're making, how purposely vague the FEC guidelines are how obtuse they can be, how you need to have a team of lawyers with you in order to understand what the FEC is telling you you can and cannot do. I mean, it's it's brilliant. And it's designed that way to keep people out, to keep outsiders out. And the same with our, our state board of elections down here. You go to our state board of elections website and you think things would be very easily explained. And no, they're not. And that's all part of what we're talking about, this, this keeping people out of politics so that this legalized bribery or protection racket, whichever you want to call it, can continue running. So that the racket itself, the machine can keep running smoothly.
0: Yeah. And in those state boards of elections, we found out in Wisconsin, you know, my running mate moved during the petitioning period and we asked him for how to handle that for her address on petitions. And we got three different answers, but with the third one, and did what they said and then uh, when it came time for the hearing they wouldn't let us present our evidence that we did what they said and one of the things their lawyers uh, from the Democrats brought up is we didn't send a letter to somebody and there's nothing in the regulations that said we had to send this letter they yeah. just said well that's something we always do because the Republicans and Democrats you know they move sometimes during petitioning periods Sure, and and you know they got lawyers that do this for a living. And so they know all the inside things that aren't even in the regulations, but you know, they, they tried to use that to, as part of their argument to knock us off the ballot, which they got. And the other thing in, in, in our experience in the presidential campaign was when these cases went to court, the judges were hacks. The Republicans always voted to put us on and the Democrats always voted to put us off. Exactly. And I'm
1: sure it was the opposite, right? If, if you had been a libertarian, it would have been the opposite, right? Because right. they're gaming it. And, you know, I, I think if people haven't seen the film, the documentary on uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and some of the other Democrats who ran on the Justice, De- uh, Justice Democrats ticket or whatever in 2018. Um, but there's a, a really great scene in that where uh, AOC goes into the bureau, I guess the borough. Uh, a board of elections, and she has about five times as many signatures as she needs. And literally, as her and her people, after dropping off the signatures, are leaving the the, the, the building, the Democratic, the DNC lawyers are entering the building. I mean, it's a great scene. It makes you think it was staged uh, because it's so perfect. And this is someone who was running as a Democrat who had mass support. From Democratic Party organizations, they they're, they're progressive and they they can be seen, I guess, as insurgent in some ways, which I really don't uh, agree with. I mean, I, I don't think I mean, obviously, I'm wrong as a green. And I think that AOC and others like her, uh, some of whom who are great politicians who I really believe have the best of intentions, um, they should be in the Green Party uh, or in, in PSL or in Social Alternative or something on the left. Right. You know, um, but not in that Democratic Party where just by do- joining the Democratic Party they've already compromised themselves And you know, once you once you go into it and say you've already compromised yourself, then you are willing to compromise yourself further um, And that's you know how we end up with this this duopoly uh, you know from the very moment where people go to the ballot box and they're acting like some kind of MSNBC or Fox News pundit by trying to figure out the lesser of two evils right and trying to game the system already and so even the voters, are not voting on conscience. They're not voting on belief. They're not voting on philosophy. They're voting uh, compromised and you're electing compromised people. And so the fact that we have a compromised government that is beholden to, you know, the banks, the corporations and the wealthy. um, Yeah. I mean, that screams at us that we have to do something to to fundamentally. I don't want to say break because but, yeah, break the system that we have and rebuild it.
0: Yeah, it's ironic. AOC said when she was still supporting Bernie Sanders' primary challenge that in any other country, she would not yeah. be in the same political party with Joe Biden. One yeah. of these days, I'm a writer a letter and saying, well, what that means is she should get behind the Fair Representation Act, right. which would set a proportional representation in the House. And there are only seven sponsors. I mean, the, the squad, the Progressive Caucus, they've just ignored that bill. Um, and if we had it, you know, people like AOC, I think would be in the party like the green party because they'd be more comfortable there. Yeah. It, it would be, you know, we've seen her cry on the house floor over that vote over the iron dome for Israel. Yep. Um, right after, uh, Cynthia Nixon lost the primary against, uh, Andrew Cuomo for governor. She went on CNN and said, I'm supporting the whole democratic ticket. I mean, Andrew Cuomo is the epitome of the kind of corporate democrat that she was running against. But that's you know, if, if you don't do that, then you're you're locked out of the Democratic Party's uh you know having any influence in it. So
1: that's right. Um, that's right. And I, I really think in her case, um, you know, people have leaned in her ear and said you can be the next senator from New York, you can be the next speaker of the House possibly, not the next, or maybe in 15 years. And um but I listened to a podcast where she was uh, interviewed by Cornell West and where her where her, her voice came from, what she was saying came from something very deep and something that she really believes. And so uh, can we build something that gives her the opportunity, right, to be with us? I think that's a lot of what we're doing and trying to do is build something where we can have these people who should be with us because this is where they are philosophically.
0: Yeah. I think you broke up there for a minute, but, uh,
1: okay. I'm back.
0: Yeah. I can hear you. Okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, the green party needs to be careful sometimes. And this is true across the whole political spectrum. Sometimes we reserve our sharpest barbs for our closest, uh, you know, political, uh, people. So, um, you know, like when I'm running for president, all these prominent progressives were spending more time attacking me than Trump. Right. You right. You That's exactly. uh, that's not what we need.
1: Yeah, um, I, I think, too, you know, now we get into the idea of, of what motivates these two parties to keep it. And one of the thing is identity politics. And I'm speaking of identity politics in the blue versus red, Democrat versus Republican, not as in any type of, of uh, 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 racial or, or ethnic or anything like that, but in the sense of the way the modern parties work and the way our, our modern corporate media works as well, where it's very binary, it's very team oriented, again, blue versus red. And um, that t- form of identity politics causes people to support even things that are against their beliefs, against what they feel, against what they know to be right. And I think one of the best examples of that, of course, is what's happening on our borders, where, you know, uh, where where Joe Biden has more people in detention than Donald Trump did. Uh, You know, Barack Obama, of course, was a deporter in chief. And there's there's people who were rightly uh, enraged at Donald Trump's human rights violations at the border. But the idea is that it's the whole system that every president, Uh, has been guilty of these human rights violations these crimes against humanity because if what was happening on our border was happening anywhere else in the world we would justly criticize that as a crime against humanity Um, but we don't and what you see is and i know people people who have been involved with uh, sanctuary city programs who defend joe biden even though of even though what is happening on the border is an absolute crime and the suffering is just, is, is, is terrible. Um, but, and that's the result of identity politics because you feel that you cannot speak or reach for what you know to be right because you have to stay with your team. You have to stay on team blue and team red. And, and that's, you know, I think as long as we have this two party system, It will continue to worsen. And you add in the last 30 years of cable news and talk radio and now social media, and it it has actually uh, exponentially worsened. So, you know, this idea of somehow getting to a point where we can have politics uh, through ranked choice voting, say, you know, leading into proportional representation, you know, getting rid of the electoral college. Uh, getting money out of politics, all these different things we can do that we know would be successful to allow politicians to run on ideas and for voters to vote on conscience rather than what we have now, which, again, is 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 a a, a bribery or a protection or a protection racket. That's simple.
0: Yeah. And the two party system is inevitably polarizing. So it it creates this tribal politics. Like, you know, it's a zero-sum game, whereas if you have a multi-party system, uh, your coalitions are going to shift on the issue. Like on cutting the military budget and staying out of stupid foreign wars, right.
1: the
0: U- the Greens and the Libertarians are going to be on one side and the Democrats and Republicans on the other. Uh, when it comes to single-payer health care, the progressive Democrats and the Greens are going to be on one side and the corporate Democrats and the Republicans and the Libertarians are going to be on the other. So in that kind of situation, it doesn't pay to demonize your uh, opponents because the next issue, they may be your allies. Right. It creates a whole different dynamic, both during elections, uh, same thing, multi-candidate elections. If you go negative, you get a lot of mud on yourself. And where the, you know, the way, uh, what's his name? The... uh, Al Sharpton rehabilitated himself in New York politically as he ran for Senate. And it it was a Democratic primary. And all the Democrats had the knives out for each other, except Sharpton, who just put his program forward positively and then kind of made fun of them. He came to one debate with a little plastic bucket and they said, what's that for? And he said, well, this is in case the others run out of mud. I don't need it. And, uh, you know, his, his status is like a guy that was trying to be positive. It just totally flipped around for him. And uh, he did pretty well in that primary, given, you know, what the initial expectations were.
1: Yeah. You know, um, one of the things I've, I've been really grateful for uh, these last weeks as I've, I've been doing this campaign is the amount of support I've gotten from my libertarian friends. I've had a lot of, uh, uh, of uh, you know, I, I do a lot of anti-war stuff. So I do a lot of libertarian networks and speaking things and radio shows and that and, and that stuff. And so I have a lot of libertarian friends. And uh, a lot of people who follow me on Twitter because, you know, they heard me on Scott Horton's radio show, you know. Um, and so when I came out as a, a Green Party candidate, um, if they were if they were paying attention to me, they would know I'm a, a socialist and everything else. But many of them didn't. And I didn't get that pushback. You know, oh, this guy's a communist. He's a he's a pinko. You know, I didn't get that from the libertarians because they knew I believed what I was saying, that where I had come to. I, where, I, where i got into i come to based on my life's experience and i was being honest about it and i feel the way about that about many other liber, about many libertarians i know you know in a sense i don't agree with them i mean maybe i, I we do agree on certain things uh civil liberties the wars other things but uh, there's plenty we don't agree on and i would be happy to stand up and debate with them and that's the whole idea of democracy look this this guy over here is a libertarian he he thinks that uh we should the, the fire department shows up at your house You should have to pay them a bill. Right. I mean, like I mean, like that kind of thing. And then let the people let the people decide what is best for them. And that's what the government does. I mean, that's the idea of democracy. And I've been so I've been really grateful for that kind of support from people who are, again, 75, 80 percent opposed to me philosophically on the issues, you know, we can't even agree on which books we should read, you know, but we both know we all know that we are coming to this from an honest place. Uh, and, And that makes a difference. And I think that's what the voters deserve is they deserve to have people in front of them. Who have arrived at the place they're at through, you know, their life's experience, and there's no other thing manipulating them, particularly, you know, the machinations that come from. Oh man, if I say this, you know, that's really going to hurt me. I'm not going to get a hundred grand from, you know, this pack, right? I mean, and, and so again, another reason why these democracy reforms are so important. I mean, and, and something too, Howie, like looking, and I know you know this, right? Your platform. What did you have on your platform that didn't have majority public opinion support or plurality support? I mean, probably nothing. I mean, and the same with mine. I mean, American people want the things that we're advocating for, and they're not being allowed to have them because we have a corrupt system that prevents, you know, the will of the people, the needs of the people being addressed. Um, yeah. So uh, another reason why all these democracy reforms are so necessary, because, as you said, and I agree, it's worsening. The, 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 the cultural, po- the, the, the culture war politics, identity politics, what it, red versus blue, tro- whatever you want to describe it as is worsening. And meanwhile, these life and death issues, look, we, we had a, a broken and failed healthcare system before the pandemic. We now have over nine hundred thousand more dead people than we would have with that broken and failed healthcare system, and there's no moves made for us to improve it. I mean, what are we getting? Eventually, those four tests are going to show up in my front door. That's it. That's the that's the, the the scope and the vaccines, you know, which have saved a lot of lives. But all the things we know that is about our healthcare system, how uh, it is failing our people. And people are dying because of it. Uh, and, and before COVID, they were dying because of it. Um, yeah, we're not, there's no improvement on it. And, and you have to sit and say, how is this possible that when you can have something like this occur, there has been no change. There's been no, uh, there's been no improvement. There's been no push to fix something that is so obviously broken. And you have to go back to, well, it's a corrupt system.
0: Yeah, Medicare for all is just not on the table in the Democratic-controlled Senate and House. It's just not going to come up. The, in fact, Bernie Sanders didn't even put in his single-payer bill in the Senate yet. Yeah, you know, and the one they put in the House by Jayapal is a compromise that allows more privatization of Medicare. It's uh, it's really pathetic. And you know, you mentioned earlier, uh, yeah, I, I was saying this during the campaign. Uh, you do public opinion polling on our issues, Medicare for all green new Deal, student debt relief down the line. My platform was more popular than Biden's and Trump's. Right. Cause the things we were for, they were both against.
1: Right. Right.
0: But, you know, we couldn't even get a word in edgewise. And I think you bring that down to the more general level, you know, down ballot elections, you know, 90% of house seats, and 95% of state legislative seats are not competitive. Right. They're basically one-party districts where one of the other major parties has a majority. So people don't vote because they say, well, I can vote all I want. It's not going to change who represents me. I don't have a representative for me, so to hell with the whole thing. I'm I'm opting out. So we got, right. I guess Gallup now has 62% of the people want another party. Right. So at some point, we got to break through. Um, I've seen some questions in the chat. So, you know, put those up uh, uh, soon. There we go. So here you go, Matt. Question for you. Uh, Mr. Anderson asks, Matthew, oh, please tell me you support a federal jobs guarantee. Also, have you looked at modern monetary theory?
1: Hey, thanks, Mr. Anderson. Yeah, I do. Both things. uh, uh, Yes, Uh, uh, I, I believe jobs are a human right. Uh, and I think that, uh, it goes more than having a just, uh, you know, or fair living wage. Um, the, 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 focus in progressive politics seems to be around $15 an hour. And that's simply not enough. The average, uh, last year, uh, in North Carolina, the average two bedroom apartment cost $18 and 50 cents an hour to rent, you know, fair market rent, no one's paying more than a third of their income for housing comes out to you need to earn $18.50 an hour uh, to rent a two-bender apartment in North Carolina. The average wage in North Carolina was $16.30. So well below that eighteen fifty mark. And that was last year. Since then, we've seen rents go up t- about roughly 20% here in North Carolina since then. So now you're talking about, you know, you need to earn about twenty three dollars an hour or so, twenty four dollars an hour in order to f- afford a two bedroom apartment. And I tell you what, wages have not gone up that much. So it, it goes to an idea that we have to have an annually adjusted living wage, but even more so to your point of a guarantee, if someone wants to work, needs to work, they should have a job. There are plenty of things that this country can you ha- utilize people for. To serve the public good. Um, I was watching an old, uh, you know, it's kind of reminds me of watching an old uh, film about late 19th century, you know, and you had the sanitation people, you know, what I mean, not, you know, just in the idea that there are always things that we can utilize people for in this country. You know, one of the things that, Uh, you know, I'm taking on, you know, shamelessly adopting, I'm I'm a big believer that uh, plagiarism is the most sincere form of flattery. And if you see, oops, this side, oh, behind me, I've got the Green Party, Green New Deal poster up there. Uh, You know, and hey, where is this Green New Deal that will get us 20 to 30 million jobs? So it's not this idea of a jobs guarantee, meaning somebody is out there with a broom sweeping the street. No, it's about actually getting people into work that is long term work, uh, work that requires training, work that is satisfying to the individual as much as it is to society. So yes, very much agree with the jobs guarantee. Uh, And it's also to a policy choice. We've had for decades in this country, a choice made by the federal government to pursue lower inflation rather than full employment. I think it's been a false choice for many decades. But this is what the markets want. So rather than Pursuing full employment, we pursued financialization and the banks have gotten bigger. The corporation's wealthier. We now have more billionaires than we can even count. Um, I mean, so all this comes into it as well in terms of what does a jobs guarantee actually mean and why we should have one. And modern monetary theory, uh, just to be quick about it. Yes, I have. Uh, I agree with that is how the United States government's uh, of spending uh, works. Uh, it doesn't apply, I believe, to states. Or to, to nations that don't have uh, the type of, of sovereign currency like the United States does, but I do believe that because of of uh, you know the the way the United States set up the financial structure of the world after World War II, and then President Nixon's removing the United States from the gold uh, ty- the gold standard in 1971, that we do have this type of sovereign currency that is immune to. You know, different deficit arguments. However, that's not how our political system is set up. So, even though we can spend $30 trillion in this country and, and, you know, excuse me, have $30 trillion of debt in this country and not have the ramifications that economics tell us we should, because modern monetary theory is true and exists, we also have uh, this deficit mindset, though. So, this is Medicare for all, Joe Biden. Uh, the entire Republican Party. How are you going to pay for it? Right. I mean, so and this is the re- one of the real consequences of the one point two dollars we spend on war every year. You know, more than half of our tax dollars go to war. You know, this is the reality of that is that that allows people in Congress to say, no, we can't afford student debt cancellation. No, we cannot afford universal higher education. Right. This is why we just saw child poverty jump 40 percent again, because the child tax credit got cut again. Right. I mean, so it didn't get renewed. So, yeah, I mean, so question, long winded question, long winded answer, excuse me, to your questions, Mr. Anderson, you know, thumbs up to both of us.
0: Scout Trooper 164. Matt, did you gain any of your political stances during your time as a Marine? Also, thanks for your service.
1: I, I did. I did. I uh, so I uh you know, I was, uh, I went in the Marine Corps in 1998, uh, a couple of years after I graduated college. I had worked in finance after college and I was, I was essentially bored uh, and I wanted to do bigger and more important things. And there's a long story with this we don't have time for because I actually had had the opportunity to go to West Point at a high school. I graduated high school in 1991, but I chose not to go because of uh, what I witnessed with the first Iraq war. Um, and so there was always this competing thing inside me, uh, between doing what was right and being a part of something of the world, if you will, right. Being a part of something serious and being involved in what I I think for lack of a better term, the establishment, right. For being involved with what I saw as being important to society, as opposed to doing what was right for me. So yes, being in the Marine Corps, really shifted my views, really, uh, and I shouldn't say shifted, but really solidified my views. Uh, certainly, um, what I witnessed, uh, in other countries in terms of how they, uh, conducted themselves both positively and negatively, but also some of the people I came to in contact with the Marine Corps, um, you know, by the time 2004, uh, is, uh, uh comes around, I am, I am, a, a, a leftist, uh, you know, um, how he brought up Al Sharpton earlier. And I remember in the 2004 primary, Al Sharpton was the person I liked, uh, you know, the democratic property. I hadn't gotten into third party politics yet. I wouldn't call myself at that point a socialist um, because a lot of it too, is that, you know, I can say that I went to a very good public high school. I was the high, my high school classes, history award winner, right? So total nerd about this stuff. I went to boys state. So I was a big politics and current event guy. However, Um, You know, I went to a good college. Uh, I never read Zinn or Chomsky or Angela Davis. You know, I never read certainly any of Martin Luther King's uh, writings uh, that would we would describe as socialist. You know, I read a letter from a Birmingham jail and some other things. But you mean, so my uh, exposure to this, I think, was very similar to what a lot of other Americans have. Because this type of thinking is excluded from, uh, you know, the allowed uh, uh, canon, right? That what what we're allowed to read, what what serious people read. I used to get uh, and excuse me. I didn't realize the sum was going to be uh, <laughs> at this angle right now. Um, but you know, I used to get. I used to have a subscription to the New York Times, and I used to read the Economist, and you know, had a subscription to the New Yorker, and all those things. And you would never come across any of the names. Uh, let alone uh, theories or or references to, you know, anyone, even like Emma Goldman or, or or Rosa Luxemburg or any of Eugene Debs, any of those names are left out of our history. Uh, if you are getting our history from the established corporate sources or from our official education system. So, hey, Scout Trooper 164. Yeah. So a lot of this did come about while I was in the Marine Corps and in certainly the wars, uh, you know, and I get taken part in them my own cowardice and continuing to go through with them, even when I knew they were not right, but the lies I told myself allowed me to keep doing that. Um, yeah, that has brought me to this place here today. So thank you for that question.
0: Eric Gray. Hello, Matt. Any thoughts on how you would address reparations with the understanding that it's deeper than just cutting a check?
1: Yeah, thanks, Eric. And, and, and I think that's the first step. I think most people... Uh, particularly white people in this country think of reparations as simply just okay. There's X amount of millions of black people in this country, and everyone's going to get a forty-two thousand dollar check, and that'll be the end of it. And it's not, you know, it's not. Certainly, there's a financial uh, uh, aspect to it because one of the things when I talk to people about this, and really what I understand really hits home for me, besides of course the the criminalization, the 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 fact that. My neighbors across the street, their boys, because they are black, have like a what a one in three chance of ending up in prison, while my white nephews have a, what a what like a one in nineteen chance of ending up in prison. So there's that, but then there's also the wealth issue, the fact that we have uh, a, a systemic racial economic system in this country, racialized economic system in this country that causes black families to have you know, at least only one tenth the wealth of white families. And if you look at any other metric, right, how, you know, any uh, housing, university attendance, all those different things, you see that that holds true. So it, it goes deeper than cutting a check because it's about recognizing that we have a system that is organic, that's alive, that was here at before the birth of the country, that has extended through it, that we couldn't kill uh with the civil war could because it just uh evolved into something else and evolved right into to to uh uh, you know the the terrorism of the ku klux klan and the prison labor of the late 19th century it evolved into jim crow right it's it's evolved into uh the the war on drugs that we see right now so some of it is is recognizing that look what we're up against is a living thing It, it evolves right and so we have to take that on and a big part of that is education but it but it also too it's it, it is it, it's about making sure everyone has that level playing field and that's why i'm so big into universality so reparations may come from the form that universal higher education is something that cannot you know you cannot deny you know if you start you know applying things i think um, specifically, you know, ba- you know, doing litment tests is, w- there's all kinds of way to exclude people. I mean, look at I think you look at Bill Clinton's uh, one crime bill and his welfare, welfare reform, and you see that you can see how something that supposedly is, 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 is going to make things better actually targets communities. So if you have universality, where everybody has healthcare, everyone has housing, everyone has education, everyone has, at least you've got that fair start for everyone and a foundation that everyone uh, can uh, uh, be included in. But, you know, addressing the deeper systemic issues, the the legacy of racism in this country um, is something that will take, uh, you know, generations, but it's something that we have have to continually address and keep in the forefront of everything that we're doing with the understanding that, look, no matter what we do, they're going to fight us on and they're going to seek to change it. So if we end the war on drugs tomorrow, there will be something else done to make sure that our black brothers and sisters are penalized, oppressed, and kept as like the lowest caste along with, I mean, like, we shouldn't say caste, right? Because there's so many other groups in this country that have been, you know, the hierarchy just, just descended upon, right? So native Americans or Latino brothers and sisters. I mean, all, all kinds of, of, of people. So, but that art the system will do something, right? The system will do something in response to whatever we do. And I think it's a continual struggle, but reparations is a key aspect of it.
0: Before the next question comes up, I, I, Wanted to, uh, you know, ask you to say a few words about what you think we should be doing about the Ukraine crisis. Because sure, I
1: mean, get out of the sun. It's really in the headlines right now. Yeah, you know, um, well, the answer, it, 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 it I think you got to start with what do we, what do we believe in, and we believe that everybody has a fundamental right to live in peace, right, and in safety. And, and and to the point that we were talking about earlier, that you you had said at the start of the show, you don't believe the Russian government, you don't believe the American government. Same here. I, I go back to the great Irish socialist rebel James Connolly, and during the First World War, over his trade union, he had the sign, "Not neither King or Kaiser," right? I mean, and that's the thing. We 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 are for the people, and my heart and my mind and my soul right now are for the Ukrainian people. And by the Russian people, because they will suffer too in a war. And I'll also say the only thing I know about a war in Ukraine is that it won't go the way anyone says it will, and that no one will ever be held accountable. That's the only two things I can tell you, Howie, about a war in Ukraine. Right? Everything else, you know, but that's it. You know, but you know, if you look at this war, you know, and it's, and if we go from there, and we say we stand with the Ukrainian people, we stand with the Russian people, not with any of the military superpowers not with any of the governments that are controlled by oligarchs so whether the government in moscow or the government in dc or the government in ukraine or the government in london we are with the people and from there i think we look at this as as well as how did we get here and you look at it and you say my god this is you know when you peel away the root causes i come to root causes. root causes one is about energy about fossil fuels is about the liquid natural gas market in europe okay, as well as other trade and commercial interests. And two, it's this crazed uh, uh, delusion of, of realist geopolitics, you know, that dominate the people that populate Washington, D.C., that populate London, that populate Moscow. You know, this, this as, as C. Wright Mills said decades ago about the Cold War, crackpot realism, right? I mean, and that's what we're up against. This is, this is what killed my friends in Iraq, this is why, this is, the, this is what killed many Iraqis I knew, you know, something I live with and that like will never, uh, you know, and, and boohoo, I live with it, but they're dead, you know, like that kind of thing. These are the people that killed the people I knew in Afghanistan. I mean, over and over and over again, we, can, we could be here all day talking about the injustices. But so with Ukraine, I think the idea is to stand up to it and say, this is unjust this is not right. We know where this goes, right? And we know what the answer is. You brought the answer up before, the Minsk II Accords. Go back to those. Those were working. Was it perfect? No, it wasn't. But it kept the fighting to what you could consider to be a minimum. And it was something that at the time in 2015, all parties agreed was a pathway. And then what I think what happened, honestly, and I think this is what happened in Afghanistan over the last couple of years, is that Minsk II came payment board. Uh, The Ukrainians signed up for it. All the parties involved signed up for it. And the Americans went to those in Ukraine, to those oligarchs, into the politicians they have bought, into the various neo-Nazi fascist groups and other groups that are these geopolitical uh, types that think they can treat the world like one giant game of risk. And they said, look, we can make it so that you guys win. We can send you the weapons and money you need to win. You don't have to do Minsk, too. Right. You can you can we can we can manufacture this so that you guys come out ahead and you beat Russia and these people, because they're crackpot realists as well, went along with it. It's the same as that kleptocracy we had going in Afghanistan for 20 years when Donald Trump, one of the few things he did that was anywhere near correct, started to try and get us out of Afghanistan. I know that we had American diplomats and American generals that went to the Afghan government, which is the most corrupt government in the world. Right. Composed of warlords and drug lords and say, you know what? This gravy train doesn't have to stop. Once Joe Biden comes in, we're going to we're never going to leave. Don't worry about it. And Joe Biden, to his credit, did leave Afghanistan. But I think that is one of the reasons why you saw in 18 months of negotiations or supposed negotiations between the Taliban and the Afghan government, the Afghan government refused to negotiate. Now, the Taliban did their part to make sure it didn't go through, but they thought they could win militarily. So that's why they did that. But the Afghan government is so crooked and they were emboldened by uh, these Americans who said we're never leaving. So they never negotiated. And we saw what happened in Afghanistan this past year. And I believe the same thing has occurred in Ukraine. So the whole thing is dirty. The whole thing is dirty. We need to stand up against it because it's dirty and we know where it goes. Like I said, the only thing I know is that it won't go the way any of these people are telling us it's going to go. It's going to go the way all of the previous wars have gone. And the fact that it is motivated by greed and money, this is no different when I talk about liquid natural gas and people said, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. No, I'm not. This is the way American government has run its foreign policy for 200 years. You know, why do I have to give you any more examples about that other than united fruit in Central America, right? Other than what we've been doing in the Middle East for decades after World War II, the relationship between the United States and the Saudi government. I mean, the, the, the relationship between big oil that, that allows for that relationship to exist, right? I mean, so this is the reality of the war in Ukraine and the suffering that can come from it is immense as well as the very real danger that this thing, like all wars, it, it will be a breeding ground of unintended consequences and that it could quickly spiral out of control. And what we know happens, we have these people in power who think that they can utilize nuclear weapons. This started again under the Obama administration with an introduction of usable nuclear weapons. We have people in power who think that they can fight and win a nuclear war and everything we know. Look, whenever they do these war games, I have friends who take part in these kinds of things. Whenever they go do these war games, and a lot of times it happens with China, and the American side is losing, so the American side says, we're going to use a nuclear weapon because the United States does not have a no-first-use policy. The we, we, United States will utilize nuclear weapons and has had plans to utilize nuclear weapons since, and we've used nuclear weapons in the last 80 years. Um, the fact, what happens is that these people say, we're going to use a nuclear weapon. And whoever's running the war game says, stop. We're not doing this any longer because everything we know about escalation theory, says you can't control it. But we have people in power who think that they can use nuclear weapons and win. The the strategy is called escalate to deescalate, and it's madness. And so uh, the danger in this is really, really, you can't be hyper, uh, you know, you can't exaggerate it. Uh, The danger is is very severe.
0: Yeah, that escalate to deescalate is now the doctrine of both the U.S. and Russia which is scary as hell. Right. And, uh, you know, what you were just talking about reminded me of uh, Daniel Ellsberg. Yeah. Um, And he was pointing out, well, yeah, the doomsday machine, once one nuke flies, it's automated. They're all going to fly.
1: Yeah. And, And, uh, yeah, and I particularly like your, 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 your point you made, Howie, because again, everything is so binary here in this country that I just saw polling. I looked up polling earlier today on Ukraine and the polling, uh, I think it was from Gallup. Uh, the, it was terrible polling. The, the question was basically, uh, should the United States take the Ukrainian side or the Russian side, right? I mean, like that was the polling. Everything is so binary. So it's either how we are supporting Joe Biden or we're supporting Vladimir Putin. I mean, that's madness. It's absolute madness. And I support neither of them and I never will. Uh, You know, I mean, it's but but that's not a choice that we're allowed to have in our current political and media system. We have to choose one or the other. Right. I mean, and and the results of that, the catastrophe of that, the fact that we can't say, wait. And and the fact, too, that we have just just the whole thing, the whole idea that, you know, I I guarantee if if we had Howie Hawkins as president, um, you would have been on a plane to Moscow or some neutral setting or whatever a long time ago to work this out with Putin. I mean, you would have done that. You know, we, we don't have people in power who are even willing to do that. You know? Uh, um, I mean, remember I, I'm old enough to remember how Reagan was treated because he went to go meet with Gorbachev, right? Members of the own party calling him a traitor. Um, and you can't, right. I mean, like, so the, the, that fact that there's no way we're ever going to see Joe Biden jump on a plane and hammer this out with Putin, Um, you know, it, it, it really, it really causes me to despair, but then it also causes me to say, look, what are we going to do about this and how are we going to fix this?
0: Well, that's why we need you on the ballot. I saw somebody say, "Would they be able to write you in if you don't get on the ballot? Whoever that is, if you're in North Carolina, get some signatures. We got to get Matthew on the ballot.
1: Yeah, that, that's exactly right, Duck. Yeah. Duck is, thanks for writing in, Duck. Yeah, exactly. If you're down here in North Carolina, uh, please contact my campaign, uh, we can utilize your help. Uh, website is matthewho for Senate dot org. There it is on the screen. Yeah. And please, uh, you know, um, it's very expensive, but it's also very time consuming. And also, too, you know, Doc, you may have uh, you may have some skills that we can utilize. You know, we have like a website issue. None of us are coders. You know, I mean, I can uh, just the fact that I'm sitting here doing this, talking to to Howie on a live stream. That's the extent of my technical ability. Right. I mean, so like, you know, and that's for everyone out there. If you have some skill, if you're a writer, an editor, you know, if you play a saxophone, whatever it is, let us know, because we may be able to, you know, we, we might have a great use for you on the campaign. So and then the third thing, too, is tell your friends and family about us. We are locked out of the traditional media. I mean, I I have been on lots of media. I have been on, in the last six months, I have been on lots of media. Um, I've been on big-time leftist podcast media. And I can tell you that no one is returning my emails. Um, You know, I have been on local media down here in North Carolina. Just five months or so ago, I was on television stations in Raleigh and in Charlotte, and I had an op-ed in our state's two biggest newspapers. No one even acknowledges. I mean, I'm emailing directly to the people I spoke with, right? You know, and no, don't even get a response. Not even a hi, Matt. you know, and, and it's a catch 22. What they say is like, well, you got to show us that you're viable and you say, well, how can we get to be viable if you're not giving us the media, you know? And so that's part of it is like we need people to be involved and to build this so that we can say, look, we just crossed that threshold uh, for ballot access You know, we just raised X amount of money. We just did events every we've done every we've done events every weekend and we're getting bigger and bigger crowds. People enjoy hearing our message. They're saying they need to hear this. They want this on the ballot. You know, so those kinds of things. So, yeah, Doc, uh, please contact the campaign and we will uh, be really grateful for anything you can do.
0: Violet at Content Boutique. Matthew. How would you handle our immigration crisis?
1: Um, no one is throwing me any small time questions, huh? <laughs> the, um, uh, yeah, no, it is. I mean, we spoke about this earlier, and it's a, it's a crime against humanity at the border, uh, you know, at our border. And I, I think open borders are the answer. Uh, I think there's two ways to look at this. One is that when you have a undocumented, illegal uh class of 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 workers in this country that pulls down wages you've created a subclass right and that hurts all workers and so i think from from an, a, a worker economic standpoint opening the borders and allowing for 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 uh migration is necessary because otherwise it hurts american workers you know um we're a nation of immigrants I am uh, the grandson of immigrants. My grandmother came from Ireland, my um, grandfather from Spain, uh, and my other two grandparents, they were, their parents came from overseas. So I, I am kind of a second and a half generation American. So I, I'm very proud to be an immigrant and we are a nation of immigrants. And I think that explaining to people that people come here with values, um, with skills, and with a belief in the United States that we can use. So, opening the border and allowing people to come. And then the other side of it is that, you know, a lot of people who come are, 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 are coming here. Um, you know, people don't flee their homes. Because they want to. People don't flee and and drop everything and after centuries of their family living someplace or however long, leave all the roots, leave all their extended families, leave everything they have to strike it out in some other country unless there's a dire need. Um, And so I think we have to recognize that. So the way you handle it is is an open border policy, is an economic policy that understands and, and values migrants people coming into our country uh, a federal policy that works not to look we can do a lot with people we can detain people all we want we can catch we can round them up we can catch people we can build walls we, we, it's kind of like what i said about what happened in afghanistan uh last year uh in a sense that the american military went into uh, a city in the center of an occupied, the occupied capital of a country, they just lost a, a not a 20 year war, really a 40 year long war. Uh, and on one runway, they evacuated more than 120,000 people in less than 10 days. I mean, an amazing achievement, right? Technically, just a, in terms of how moving that many people that fast, we can do so much in this country if we want to, and if we choose to do so. So if we choose to allow people to come into this country and we choose to have policies that value what they can do for us, uh, not just economically, but, uh, but socially, culturally, all kinds of things, uh, you know, so opening the border, having policies that do exactly that, um, that that is my solution for the border crisis, um, you know, and it's and it's, it's got to be a federal solution. I certainly understand if you live on the border, the idea that all these people are showing up in your town yeah, that's overwhelming. I get that. I'm not, you know, daft about that. But that's why if we have policies that allow for these people to come in, and if the and, and so many of them are refugees, uh, you know, we can resettle them. You know, I, I lived a long time in my life, I lived in Northern Virginia, and we had a very vibrant Vietnamese population from after the Vietnamese war. And anyone who would say that that population wasn't a a, a complete and total boon to the local area the fact that we had this this amazing vietnamese community within our community there they were lying i mean so and the same thing can happen here i mean we we can resettle people we can we can do this properly and justly um and 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 the benefits from that you know and the, the, the final thing i'll say about this is that we need to understand the root causes of why they are fleeing why they are coming here A lot of this, I brought up United Fruit before. A lot of this has got to do with decades or or centuries, I guess, of American involvement in Central America, in the Caribbean, in South America that has been just completely destructive for those communities, for those countries. Um, You know, and so as well as to the coming climate crisis, we're already in the climate crisis, but as it worsens, you know, we're talking about hundreds of millions of migrants around the world. So I think what we see on our border now is nothing compared to what we will see in 20, 30, 40 years. And if we don't have a plan to bring those people in a humane plan, um, what we have now will be a minor, minor compared to what's occurring in, in 20 or 30 years.
0: Well, we're over our hour and I think, uh, we're not going to get any more questions sent in. Uh, so, Matthew, you have any final words you want to sell people?
1: No, I mean, I, I really appreciate this opportunity, Howie. I really appreciate everything you've done, you know, Angela's done. Uh, I appreciate what, what Andrea is doing, you know, behind the scenes here, um, because these are life and death issues. I mean, these are, we have uh, 22,000 people to continue with the immigration. We have 22,000 people in captivity at the border right now. These are life and death issues. Um, so um, if people agree with what I'm saying, if they believe in the Green Party, if they believe that the two party system is not going to fix this and is only going to get worse, as, as Howie and I believe and as we described, um, please support. Uh, our campaign down here we need to get uh 14 thousand signatures to get on the ballot it's it's crazy expensive it shouldn't be like this but it is the way it is i always get a knot in my stomach when i, I ask people for money because you know here we are a uh, couple a couple of guys who want to get money out of politics and we have to ask for money all the time you know i mean it's not right but it is what it is it is the system we have and we're going to change that but so please if people can donate if they can volunteer. And again, you might think that what you have to offer is not worth it, but let us decide that I guarantee you've got something for us that we can utilize, you know, and then please tell your friends and family about us, uh, you know, share with, uh, 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 your coworkers, your classmates, you know, all your followers. Um, we're on, excuse me, we're on Facebook and Instagram and we're on TikTok. Uh, So at some point, you guys will get to see me do a dance on TikTok or something like that. But uh, yeah, please support uh, how you can.
0: Well, thank you, Matthew. I'll just close by saying I think your campaign is maybe the most important campaign the Greens are running this year in the nation at a time when, you know, you talked about the tribalism red and blue. But they're not that way when it comes to militarism and uh, interventionist foreign policy. And it's really important that you're in this race and hopefully we'll have more green candidates for the House and Senate uh, challenging that because there's no challenge. I mean, if they say there's no bipartisanship, well, there's certainly bipartisanship in adopting the military budget this year. You know, Democrats and Republicans got together and gave Biden $25 billion more for his uh, Pentagon budget than he asked for. Right. So th- that for that reason alone. Um, I think your your campaign is very important. And uh, we got to try to, you know, get the media to cover you. Uh, but what you described is an old story. You know, we have a prominent lawyer here in New York, uh, Michael Sussman, civil rights lawyer, uh, environmental lawyer. Uh, everybody wants him to represent them. Uh, he is in the newspapers. He's the guy in the uh, HBO series uh, Show Me a Hero.
1: He's oh, okay. a lawyer
0: desegregating yonkers he was in the new york times regularly for 35 years and then he runs for attorney general on the green ticket in 2018 and suddenly they blanked him out yeah and his actual pr guy is a uh, you know press secretary was a former anchor at a tv station in new york who had friends at the new york times and he called up and said what's the deal and they said the new york times just decided they're going to not cover the greens this year yeah so that's what we're up against um So the way to beat that is to get enough votes that they can't ignore us. So um, I just urge people, and look, I don't get a pit in my stomach asking people for a righteous cause. Everybody listening should give some money to Matthew Hull's campaign, and the website's right there on the screen. And if you're in or near North Carolina, you can have out-of-state petitioners.
1: we we, yeah we can we can with this people who sign need to be registered north carolina voters but yeah people want to come down here and help us get signatures absolutely and we'll be organizing we'll be organizing around specific events we have a plan uh to gather these signatures using regional leads and petition leads and the whole organization i mean that's part of a lot what we're doing is organizing so um yeah absolutely please if you're interested in that we are happy to have you come visit
0: well, good. So I hope people who can will do that and everybody can give Matthew a few dollars and uh, lots of little people giving a little bit adds up. Bernie Sanders has shown that. So, right. um, you know, let's let's get some money to Matthew. I'm going to give send him some money today. So, uh, all right. Well, I appreciate you coming on and uh, good luck with your campaign. Maybe we'll have you on again. I hope you can get your signatures early. So those people that can travel can come to New York, April 19th. Our 42 days start. You got till May 15th, but hopefully you're ready early. In any case, uh, thank you for coming on and good luck.
1: Thank you, Allie.